Thank you, worship team. Man, I love that song. Love the image of Jesus as the light of light descending to earth. And as he descends, the darkness melts away. The darkness that is the powers of hell melt away in his presence. And that's what we're coming to celebrate today. That's what we're coming to celebrate this season. Uh, It is finally Advent. It's my favorite time of year. I hope it's your favorite time of year too, but I love the ramp up to Christmas. I love how everything gets still and quiet. I love everything about it, Christmas lights and Christmas treats and songs and hymns and the songs that I sing all year long. We actually get to sing at church, which is amazing. So thank you for joining us this morning, especially after being up so late. I know watching that glorious game, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure seeing you here. So let's pray, and uh, then we'll jump in. Father, Lord, we come to you today as, as weary people, as people worn out by the trials and travails of this world, people seeking the refreshment and rejuvenation that we can only find here in your presence. We come, Lord, as, as a people who are tired, tired of the miseries of this life, tired of this broken world, as a people who long to be reunited with our great brother and savior, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the great gift that you have given us in our brother. We thank you that you did not despise us, but instead took pity upon us and made every plan to save us. Lord, as we enter this Advent season, we ask that you, just like Isaac Watts says in his hymn, prepare room in our hearts for Christ. Let our hearts prepare him room. That though the time leading up to Christmas tends to be busy and hectic and frenetic, that you instead slow us down and direct our eyes to Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came to us, that you were born as a little little tiny baby 2,000 years ago and more. It's a glorious thing that you did not count your equality to God as something to be grasped, but instead that you gave us up and that you came to us. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you be with us during this service and the rest of this week, the rest of this month, the rest of this life, Lord. That you make your presence in us powerfully known and that you constantly direct our eyes away from ourself and away from uh, anything that might stand between us and our Savior and instead direct our eyes to Jesus. Amen. So, 
Um, as Ryan said, you know, we're starting our, our Advent series, and we've in, entitled it Far as the Curse is Found, and this is kind of riffing off of, uh, again, the Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World, where uh, he says in it that Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so today, even though it, it might seem an odd place to start an Advent sermon, uh, we're going to start with uh, Genesis chapter 3. And it's all about the curse. And I was struggling to, to find an appropriate um, kind of story or analogy uh, to kind of illustrate the curse and the brokenness of this world. And the problem wasn't that I couldn't find any. It's that I could find way too many, both in my life and in other people's lives. And I finally settled on uh, a story that we've been reading as a family. It's the Little House books, Laura Ingalls. And so in that, in that book series, Laura Ingalls, she's growing up, and her, her dad is a farmer. And at some point in time, right about the 1880s, I think it is, they move to South Dakota. And when they get to South Dakota... They have the most horrible winter on record. Like, they almost starved to death because there was no food. They almost froze to death because they couldn't have, they didn't have wood or coal to burn to heat their house. And this was at a time before insulation was really prominent. And it was a bad time. And things didn't get all that much better for her. She had a good life. Um, the next few years, but she eventually marries Almanzo Wilder, uh, who owns two farms at that time, a tree farm and a crop farm, and uh, she settles into being a housewife, and they go through their first three years, and it's just disaster after disaster that afflicts their crops, and they go deep into debt just to survive, and they end up losing both farms and having to move to Missouri. And that right there, it kind of encapsulates everything about the curse. Because you see, Laura and Almanzo, they weren't, they were not slackers. They worked hard. They worked hard every day of their life. Almanzo was a great farmer, and yet, all of his work was brought to nothing three times in a row, three years in a row. All of his life's work that he had done that far brought to nothing. And they're asking in their book, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, why? Why is this happening? And I think that question resonates with all of us because we all feel that same futility. We all feel that we live in a broken world. If you lived very long at all, you had to have had those questions. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is life so hard? Why is the world so broken? And that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we call the curse an effect of the curse. 
So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. And uh, I'm old-fashioned. I like to stand when we read scripture. So please stand. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. So let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So, like I said, today we're going to be looking at the curse. And, you know, it does seem maybe a little bit like an odd text to choose during Advent. Um, You know, we're used to prophecies about Jesus, you know, from the Old Testament. Isaiah being a big one. Maybe looking at Ezekiel. Maybe looking at Jeremiah. Definitely looking at the birth narratives. And this seems odd. But... Like I said at the beginning, we're actually looking at uh, Isaac Watts's meaning when he said that Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And when he speaks of Christ like that, we have to understand the curse that we're under in order to understand what it is that Jesus came to roll back. There's also another important point here. Jesus' story actually starts right here. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But this is the start of Jesus' story. So, today we're going to be looking at three things about the curse. We're going to be looking at the pronouncement of the curse. We're going to be looking at the pervasiveness of the curse. And we're going to be looking at the purpose of the curse. Three Ps, alliteration for you. Pastors have to do it. Okay. Pronouncement, pervasiveness, and the purpose. So, the pronouncement of the curse. So, what is a curse? That's a good question. It's, you need a working definition of things whenever you go into something like this. And, you know, if you look up in the dictionary what a curse is, you will find many, many definitions. But biblically, though, according to the Bible, how God uses the word, a curse is actually the opposite of a blessing. So, from God's mouth, in Genesis chapter 12, God has called Abram from the city of Ur to Canaan. And he says to Abram, he says... I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in your family, all of the families of the world will be blessed. Um, And so, to get a, a proper understanding of what a curse is, you really have to know what a blessing is. A blessing is God favoring you, God making his face to shine upon you, turning his countenance toward you. We're so used to that benediction. That's a blessing. God making you fruitful. A curse is the opposite. It's God not smiling upon you, but expressing his displeasure. Sometimes in the past, theologians have called this the wrath of God, his just displeasure. And, you know, the wrath of God is getting kind of short shrift in modern evangelical world, but... Um, it's, actually, it's an important piece of theology, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But that's what the curse is. 
It is his displeasure and his taking away of any blessings that he might have given. So in the text, there are three, there are three people who are cursed in the text. We have Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And we're going to take them in reverse order of the text, but that order that I just listed, starting with Adam. So how was Adam cursed? What did the curse mean for him? Starting in verse 17. And he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Stop there. The ground itself is cursed. Now, the word ground in Scripture, that can actually just mean the ground, but it's usually a much more holistic term. It means the earth. And so, because of Adam's sin, the ground is cursed. And what does that mean? It means, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so you get this picture of the ground itself is now working against Adam. That whatever Adam's work is when he's planting his fields, the curse is coming and thorns and thistles are going to grow up right beside whatever he's trying to grow and try to choke it out. And I don't know if you've ever encountered a thistle. Uh, You've probably encountered some thorns, but they're sharp and they hurt, and Adam didn't have gloves. You know, getting them, he couldn't tolerate them being there because the only way he could eat is to grow his food, but he also, he didn't have any way to rip them up using his hands. And so, pain. Let's go on. And you shall eat the plants of the field. So, to this point, the trees had provided all the nourishment that they needed. And now, the trees, while providing nourishment, you know, we know that they can't actually provide now, after the curse, sustenance enough to actually keep people alive. They have too much sugar and uh, not enough of the proteins or anything else. No, he's forced to eat food from the ground. Um, Along with this, theologians look at it and they see a disordered desire that's put in place here. So part of the curse is that he will work the ground, but he's going to work the ground by the sweat of his brow and it's going to be day in and day out and it's going to be through pain and he's going to develop a love for it. And he's going to start putting that above other things. That's the disordered desire part of it. We kind of get a hint of that when we start looking at Eve's. Finally, Eve's curse. Finally, there's death. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He is now under the shadow of death. He will die. So, 
Let's turn to Eve. Starting in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, part of that is obviously the, the physical act of giving birth, but you know, theologians have long recognized that the physical act of giving birth is not really, while that is immensely painful, ask my wife, um, it is not the, the chief pain that's being talked about here. It's actually the pain of bringing up children, particularly bringing up children in a cursed world. And for Eve in particular, if you just fast forward one chapter, she's had two sons, and one of them goes to war against the other one and kills him, and she has to suffer through that loss. And not only just the loss of Abel, but the loss of Cain, because he's exiled. And that's part of, part of the curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Now, there, there's kind of an interpretive issue there. Some translations say your desire will be for your husband. ESV says your desire will be contrary to your husband. The sense of it is this, though, is that whatever your desire is, if you desire your husband so much, he's going to rule over you. He's not going to desire you in the same way you desire him. There's a, a disordered desire. Or that what he desires, you're not going to desire. That's the contrary part. And again, your desires aren't going to be met. So you have this interpersonal strife that's, being, that's been set up between Adam and Eve at this point. And a broken relationship Finally, we get to the serpent. So, starting in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, when we get to the serpent, it's, it's odd. One of the first things that God says to the serpent is, cursed are you above all the animals and the beasts of the field, which implies necessarily that there's a curse that's going out to all of the animals. And so, we have the animals being cursed, we have the ground, the earth being cursed, we have the first people being cursed. This is a picture of all creation being subjected to the curse. And enmity is going to be put forth between the serpent and Eve. So we kind of got a handle now on what the curse was as it was pronounced to the people who were there. Well, what about the pervasiveness of the curse? See, there's a dirt of quality of, of things as we go forward from here. Like, it's not just 
that Adam, Eve, and the serpent were cursed, but the ground was cursed, and that stays. It's not just that the animals were cursed for that time. They stay cursed. It's not just that there is something that is put between Satan and Eve, but it's between Satan and his offspring and Eve and her offspring. It's this cosmic battle that has started where they are always hostile to each other, the children of God and the children of Satan. And that's been set here. We also have the durative quality, the continuing curse of the futility of work. It's not just affecting Adam, it's affecting all of his progeny. Of course, childbearing and child-rearing are the same thing. And the biggest one, the biggest one is that death reigns. And everybody is in the shadow of death. And this is important to realize. It's important to realize that this is a curse. This is something that happened in history because today... Oftentimes, we've been living with it for all of our lives, and honestly, whenever we come up against the world being broken, we just shrug our shoulders and say stuff like, such is life, or what else could I expect? And we make light of it, and we kind of pretend that this is how it's always been, but it wasn't. At one point in time, the curse wasn't there. Death wasn't there. If Adam, before the curse, had planted a field with wheat, what would have happened? We don't exactly know, but we do know that thorns and thistles wouldn't have sprang up and started choking it out. And we do know that it would not have been a toilsome labor for him to do that and for him to harvest the fruit of his crop. We need to appreciate that the curse is stretched out over all of creation still to this day. But one day, it's not going to be there. One day, someday, the earth is going to be remade. And there will be no curse. So, what's the purpose of the curse? Um, You know, we hit upon this part just a little bit earlier when I talked about God's wrath and his displeasure, you know, God is a holy and just God. He is righteous. And his proper response to sin is wrath and displeasure. And like I said, God's wrath isn't talked about very much anymore in the evangelical world. It's not preached about very much anymore in the evangelical world. We kind of Uh, hear platitudes like, well, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. Or we we hear things like, that's outdated. Why are you talking about sin all the time? Why are you talking about God being angry at it? Why can't you just tell me God loves me? And God does love. But it is completely and utterly unbiblical to think of God's love without God's wrath. And if that's not enough, it's actually completely illogical to think of God's love without God's wrath because they all come they both come from the same source God loves because he is holy 
and just and righteous and good. And God is wrathful because he is holy and just and righteous and good. They come from the same source. And in fact, if you want to play a little thought experiment, let's say God loves you. God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. He loves you, and somebody hurts you. God can't get angry at that if he's not a God of wrath. No. His wrath is motivated by his love. You can't have one without the other. Apathy is the opposite of love, not wrath. God's wrath and displeasure, even more wrath towards sin, that's a part of the reason of the curse. But it's not the only reason, nor the prevailing reason, honestly. If you look at, um, through, if you look through Scripture, there are other things that are said about God's punishments upon people. When he punishes people, what does he say? Almost every time. Almost every time. He says, I punished you because of this. Return to me. I punished you because of this. Return to me. That's what he says over and over again. And so we get a picture here then of the curse being a corrective. Part of how the curse operates is that it makes us feel our need of God and it drives us back to him. So another thought experiment that you can play is what if Adam and Eve, they had sinned against God. They believed the serpent. They ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to. And what if God chose then not to punish them? No curse, no punishment. To them, the snake would have been right. They would have no reason to go back to God. No reason to try to reconcile with him. And if they had eaten the tree of the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived forever, not reconciled to God, feeling no need of it. What does that sound like? To me, that sounds like a picture of hell living forever, unreconciled to the greatest source of love and good in the universe. So the purpose of the curse is to break our love for and our reliance upon anything that we are looking to to fulfill our needs and desires other than God because he ultimately is supposed to be the source of our satisfaction. The purpose of the curse is to make us feel our need for him, to make us long for the new heavens and the new earth. So what's the answer then, Jason? What's the point? Stoicism, buck up. This is how it's going to be. Go back to God. Well, yeah, you should return to God. You should always turn to God. Jason, I thought you were saying how Jesus makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Where do I see that in this text and I said at the beginning that this is actually the start of Jesus' story. 
Listen again to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's talking to the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's an interpretive thing here. There's a play on words that doesn't come through in English. The word for bruise can also mean crush. And actually, that's its primary meaning, is crush. And what we see here is a pronouncement by God during the cursing of the snake that there's somebody who's coming, somebody who's coming who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Theologians look at this and they see it as the first gospel pronouncement, the first good news. That Genesis 3.15 is where God first tells people that Jesus is coming. A savior is on his way. Though it will be a long time, he's coming. It's the first prophecy about Jesus in the Bible. But what does it mean that Jesus is to crush the head of the snake? How do we see that? If we look all the way at the end of the book, Revelation, okay, chapter 12, starting in verse 9, we read the Apostle John's words, and he says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did Jesus start crushing Satan's head? It was on the cross. It was his blood poured out upon the believers, washing them clean of all of their sin, making them righteous, and giving them a testimony that is based on his work, not on their own. That is how he has done it. He crushed Satan's head on the cross, and Satan is now in his death throes even though it still feels like he is very powerful, he is flailing around and dying. It is as good as done. On the cross, we begin to see the entire curse roll back. So how do we see that? Well, right there in that text from Revelation, Satan has been thrown down. He can no longer accuse you to God. The accuser of the brethren has been dealt with. Your sin no longer stands against you and there stands nobody to accuse you. How else? How else is the curse being rolled back? Our communion with God has been restored, at least in part. One of the things that happened at the end of Genesis is that 
the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they were sent out of the garden and they no longer had communion with God. They no longer saw him face to face. But now, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even though we haven't been fully restored to communion with God, we have still been powerfully restored nonetheless because his spirit is in us. Moving in us, working in us. More than that. More than that. Eternal life is now yours. And it's guaranteed because of Christ's work on earth and his atonement on the cross. Eternal life has started. That's what the Apostle John said in John chapter 5. That this is eternal life. That they know God and his Christ. Eternal life is yours and it's started More than that, interpersonal conflicts, the vying between husband and wife, between brother and brother, sister and sister, between believers, those things are being put right. More and more, day by day, you are becoming conformed to the image of Christ, and as you do that, any disordered desires that you have, anything that is causing conflict between you and another believer in Christ is going to be put to death slowly but surely. And that is an amazing thing that God is now bringing unity. How else? There are many, many ways. We're going to be unpacking that for the rest of the month, really. How Jesus in his coming, is rolling back the curse and he's providing blessings for it. But, one last one. Your work. It's still subject to futility, right? You know, if we look at uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder story about her and Amonzo Wilder, they labored a lot And it seems like it was in vain, right? Because they lost their crops, they lost their trees, they lost their farms. They had to move. And yet, their labor was all in the glory of God. And so their labor does not ultimately prove futile. I know that because we're reading the books Millions of people are reading the books of their life and taking encouragement from it. Many people are still, still reliving that scenario with the Wilders. And God is getting glory from it because they did it in service to God. And that's your work too even when it seems futile, even when it seems like everything is working against you, even when it seems like the entirety of creation is rising up around you to foil what you are doing, your work is important because it glorifies God. So, the call to action. What can you do now? That's always the big thing of the sermon. Call to action. I have two things that, they, they might seem small, but man, they are powerful. They are powerful. First off, as we go into this Advent season, we know 
that we're all in the same boat here. We're all suffering in a broken world. We're all under the curse. Be proactive. Help other people. Recognize how they are suffering and try to be Jesus' hands and feet and bring blessings to them. Try to lift that up off of them. It can be as simple as praying for somebody. It can be giving a thoughtful gift, baking something for them just to bring them a little bit of joy. It seems small, but it has profound effects in people's lives. Do everything you can to help them feel the love of Jesus. And second, and I would say even more powerful for yourself, celebrate Christmas well. Celebrate Advent well. What do I mean by that? I mean, put up Christmas lights on your house so that every day you can remind yourself as you drive up in the dark to your house that Jesus is the great light shining in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And you can look at your house and see that every time you look at your Christmas lights. Put up a Christmas tree and look at it and meditate every day how Jesus was made a curse for us because he was hung on a tree. And let that seep into your soul, the true gift that God has given you. Not just salvation, but a rolling back of the curse. Bake fancy treats. Really unhealthy stuff. Don't put mayonnaise or whatever it is, zucchini in your brownies. Bake fancy stuff that tastes good and enjoy them as a foretaste of the coming feast with the lamb, knowing that you, this is a pale comparison with what you will be experiencing in glory with Jesus. And finally, sing. Sing. Sing the beautiful songs of Advent that celebrate the coming Messiah. Sing loud and with gusto, for our Savior reigns. He reigns, not Satan. And he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that though you saw fit to curse the world, you did it ultimately out of love for us so that we would seek you, so that you could draw us back to yourself so that you could break in us any desire that we would have that is contrary to you. Thank you. Jesus, we are in your Advent season and we we long to be restored to you. And as we go through this Advent season, constantly remind us of the second advent that will happen. The second coming where you will come and you will put Satan to death for good. 
that evil will die, that death will finally be abolished. And that every tear will be wiped away from every eye and that you will be our great light as heaven meets earth. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for dwelling in us, for being with us, for conforming us day by day to our great Savior. And by working in us to conform him to his like, conform us to his likeness. Amen.